There is the thumb and there is the subordinate thumb. So, okay, well, I, I will take my glasses off now because I can't read without them or with them, as you know. <sighs> well, I will be back on October the 23rd. Oh, did you know that we have flooding this week and or tonight all over the place? So you're, we're going to see heavy rains. Yeah. So it's crawl space time again. Uh, anyway, I'll be back on the 23rd of August. Uh, we're staying with the schedule for a while. Oh, did I say August? I did. Back on October 23rd. October. October. Okay. Hey, right, before I get going, I just wanted to point all of this stuff out. This is this math. You always should start with math, right? I don't know if you can. You, can, can you see that whole board? Is that whole board visible? Okay, terrific. Uh, well, as you know, we went through uh, Rosh Hashanah, we went through Yom Kippur, and we've now we're into Tabernacles, October the 9th through the 16th, seven days of Sukkot. And every time I get into this, into the fall like this, I get all kinds of questions about uh, what year is it according to the Hebrew calendar. And the year is 5783, the way they calculate. Now that is the Seder Olam Ravah, or the SOR. That's their calendar, and that's Rabbi Yosha ben Halafa, or Halafa Ta. I can't remember how to pronounce it. Uh, but he, and he is the Jewish equivalent to Bishop Usher. They actually came really close to, to having the exact same position. But there has been mistakes. The biggest thing to issue or to worry about, the issue to worry about, is how many Persian kings are there? Because Daniel says there's four, but history says there's thirteen. And so Daniel, of course, wouldn't record all 13. He would record the four that were the most significant to his particular book, right? And so there's 13 kings. So you can't really go by the order of the kings in Daniel. You have to figure out what the order of the kings or the length of duration of the kings are with regard to the Persian Empire. So let me just go really fast. 5783 is what they consider to be the Jewish year this year. And there is a 210 position that, that was called the 370s position that that were omitted from the original calculation. And that, of course, is the the I would call it an apocryphal position. So that if if that 210 is added to 5783, obviously we're at year 5993. We're six seven years away from 6,000. Of course, man has been given 6,000. Now, does that begin? Is the end of the tribulation the end of the 6,000 or is it the beginning of the tribulation? I should point out that the Hebrews count the beginning of the year from when Adam left the garden. And we don't know how old Adam was when he left the garden. There are positions that say that he was 100 and there are positions that say he was 70. That didn't count against him because there was no aging system, right, in the garden. So when he left the garden that, and he was under sin, then that, of course, started the aging clock, and that would be what we would consider a time position. We also have uh, the, 50, the 165 position. You'll see a 160 position. That would give us 59.48. We have the 200 position. That would give us 59.83. Obviously, I like the 59.93 position because that means I'm retiring in seven years, whether I want to or not. We're all out of here. That would be fantastic. And... Uh, it's going to be eventually 7,000 total. Will that be the end of the millennium or is that the, how does that work as well? And so Christ obviously, we, the position of Usher and I think, I think of, uh, 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 the, the Seder Olam Rava, the, the position is the same, that 30 AD probably was when Christ began his, uh, redemptive work, his, his, his phase, his being the suffering prophet. Some people believe, of course, that he ended at 30. That would make him end at 33 A.D. And if I add 2,000 to that, obviously I get 2,033. If I get, if I'm at 2,033, I add seven, I get 2,030, and all of these start to fit together. So when will Christ come? At the, he will come at the end of the tribulation. So most people believe that that will be. When I say most people, the people that do the math all the time, they think that that will be 2033 if you have a 210 position and we're currently at 5993. Now, if that made sense to anybody, I'm, I'm just thrilled. Look it up yourself. Look up the SOR and look up a Bishop Usher and you will find out all that information and then you won't have to ask me ever again because you will be on tour explaining it to people. Okay, October the 9th. 
2022, I hope. Lecture discussion number 183 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, and Genesis 15, our wonderful Genesis 15. And I say that all the time, don't I? That's how I start my lecture. With all of that said, that's been my usual introduction, at least for the most of the past three and a half years. I'm at 183, right? That's that's a long time here. That's at least three and a half years. And so, and I make minor adjustments to it, as you know, and uh, and it's always going to be subjected to modification in case I get some topic that I think is germane. And uh, that's where we were last lecture, number 182, for those of you who pay attention to that, keep score at home. If you remember number 182, we launched into this irresistible grace and total inability, which is the same thing. Irresistible grace and total inability are, are married together. And resistible grace. When I say we launched into it, uh, I launched into it uh, because I got a question from someone that wanted to deal with it. And I know that it fits in the current subject that I have. Uh, and most people thought that that didn't have it. Seemingly, they thought there was no immediate uh, communication with the books of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Genesis 15. They said there, there, this is completely off to the side and not in any way connected. And I want you to note the adverb seemingly. Obviously, again, to keep repeating this until I'm completely unable to speak. All Scripture associates with all Scripture. Uh, or consociates with all Scripture. It's a truth. It's a fact. And it is exclusive to the Bible. There is no other book that does what the Bible does with this respect. And that's 1 Corinthians 13.10. The perfect that is to come. The Bible is the perfect that is to come. And the Bible stands alone and Christ stands alone in all of history. Salvation by grace and belief and mercy and faith. That's also alone. There's no other salvation system that is like the Bible's salvation system. No other doctrine exists or ever existed that presents salvation by and through belief, grace, mercy, and faith. There's none. Thousands of religions have proposed salvation by works. But there's only one that stands isolated and unaccompanied, and that, of course, is the Bible. And I submit then that it's therefore transparent. I would even say elementary. Certainly it's uncomplicated to recognize and choose the perfect. Which one's the perfect? Is it all of these that are works-based systems, or is it the one that is the faith, mercy, love, grace system, belief? So to me, it's so obvious that the one that is over here by itself is the one that is absolutely God. It, uh, and so I think, again, you, you recognize and you choose the Word of God. Now, listen to how I said that. You choose. That will make a lot of people mad right there. And again, there are thousands that are the same and one that does not conform to the thoughts of mankind. And that's Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. God does not think like angels and men. His thoughts are not like the thoughts of angels and men. His ways are not our ways, which is why mankind then goes and devises something completely that is the antithesis to what he says in the Bible. Are you okay, young lady? You're watching my mic? Oh, you're watching my green button, aren't you? You can see it from here, so if it ever goes yellow, then we panic, is what you're telling me. You will leap across the speaker system, grab this in one motion. It'll be amazing athletically. Like she 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 what? Oh, okay. If I was going to say She-Hulk, I would never assign that to you. <laughs> yeah, and you will run back into the office and grab the appropriate batteries. Okay, so we got a plan. We are prepared. Our, our Terry is prepared, at least. Again, back where I was. We don't think like him. Mankind devises, works, law-based religions and methods of salvation. That's what mankind does. That is not what God does. Now, people say, well, what about the law? Well, the law is, is not for salvation, never was for salvation. It was a tutor, as the Bible says. So he doesn't have a law-based system. Now, that really frustrates and angers people by the hundreds of millions of all different religions and, and even in the Christian face. Yes, it is. We had a commentary there from Terry. She said, that's too bad. She doesn't seem to care. <laughs> okay. But we know 
Thus, we know that Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 3, Genesis 3, and Genesis 15 is going to be intrinsically germane to irresistible grace and total inability theory and doctrine and its counterpart, which is Arminianism, or resistible grace, which is why, as the adorable HTRP, I expediously assimilated the topic when Mindy Two Birds brought it to the fore last week. Total inability and resistible grace are actually quite similar. Uh, both introduce, both question the loving kindness of God. They both introduce that, that the questioning of his mercy and his goodness, whether or not he really is mercy and good. Uh, to repeat, John Calvin said that this doctrine of irresistible total inability uh, with respect to grace was a horrible, dreadful doctrine. That, of course, means that God is doing something that is horrible and dreadful, and that, of course, is blasphemy. That's heresy and should be walked away from as minute you see it. Okay, so anyway, I, I assimilated it. I'm much like the Borg or, or lava. Resisting me is futile. I have an assimilation ability, and I'll move it in there if I think it's viable and, and certainly if it's applicable, and that's, of course, what I did. Anyway, within this discussion, of course, when we get into this discussion of irresistible total inability, irresistible grace total inability theory, uh, we have to bring up the subset that is John 17.12, which is, of course, the eighth mystery of 2 Thessalonians 2.7 and 9, the mystery of the man of sin or the mystery of iniquity. The eighth mystery is also is, is assigned to the man of sin, as I just said, the Antichrist, the son of perdition, 2 Corinthians 2.3. John 17.12 and 2 Corinthians, the seven, second, did I say Corinthians? Or Thessalonians? I hope I said Thessalonians, but I could have said Corinthians. No, Second Thessalonians two three and John seventeen twelve are got to be read side by side. So I hope I, I hope I said Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians two three through twelve um, is in there too, and all of that has to be considered at the same time. It's all in the same frame, if you will, alongside of John eighteen nine, John thirteen twenty one through thirty, Acts one twenty five, and those are Judas passages. Every one of those that I'm reading, Matthew twenty six thirty nine through fifty. Revelation 12, 17 through 13, 7, Job 1, Job 2, Job 3. All of those are Antichrist verses in one way or the other. Some are obviously there. Some are a little bit more subtle, Job 1, 2, and 3 being those. But those are the, in my view, those are just some of the decisive mandatory passages when one begins to decipher the eighth of the eleven mysteries. If you're going to take on the eighth mystery, that's where I believe I would I would. I would submit to you that that's where you should begin. Okay, so for those of the vast internet uh, audience, whoops. Okay, I thought that, I thought it went dead right there. Okay, I can't. Okay, I thought it went dead right there, and that you would have to leap and do everything that we discussed. Okay. Uh, anyway, last week in the internet audience, those who uh, they have strayed uh, from Lecture 182. By strayed, I mean they slept through it. I, I won't blame you. I, my job is to, is to insomnifobia. Phobia. And, uh, I have to deal with that myself sometimes. I just keep thinking I'm losing it. Am I okay? Okay. It just it sounds like my I'm shutting off every now to me. Ah. <sighs> So I, I know people, I do have people that fall asleep very quickly when I do a lecture. Well, what is causing the I must be me. I, I did this. Yeah. Okay, I'll try to behave. I'll put my hands, I'll, I'll hold this. There you go. <laughs> uh, so if you slept through it last week, and that's okay. I'm just pleased that you tried. Uh, but if you went from beginning to completion in a deep sleep, that's perfectly fine. I'm going to help you out here. John 12, 7, I'm sorry, 17:12, which we, I introduced last week, is an absolutely stunning statement. It's unbelievably wild, if you will, by Jesus God Himself. It's absolutely striking. Here's what He said: While I was with them in the world, 
I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me. Let me repeat that. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. How many scriptures are fulfilled? There's one. Which one is it? He kept them in your name. That's God Himself in the flesh. The Word made God. The second person, the triune Godhead who is saying that. How complicated do you suppose it's going to be? That verse 17.12. John. Duh. The answer is duh. I, I will be unable to present the majesty of this verse. It's impossible. I can't do it. Once again, first and foremost, realize that this is a triune verse. The triune Godhead is talking to the triune Godhead. This is a tri- this is a conversation within the Elohim, the 126 of Genesis, the 322. So it's going to be ridiculous. Never take it. Just say, if you tell yourself to stop looking at what he says when Christ says something, especially to the to the Father in the context of the triunity of God. Every time he does something like that, we have no idea what's going on. And if you think you do, beat yourself over the head with something hard and, and stop thinking that way. Hopefully everyone can remember back to Lecture 181, which was September 11, 2022. And I was sifting through a pile of questions, and one of which was John from Pennsylvania, who raised the pattern of God that God has with respect to uh, to his method of revealing himself to mankind by means of this role-playing that he does. Uh, To use John's terminology, that was John's terminology, perfectly appropriate. The academic people, they label this as a dramatic theodicy, and most of them have never heard of that. The primary example of one of these kinds of role-playing or dramatic theodicies uh, usually brought forward is Genesis 18, which is Adam, I'm sorry, Adam, which is Abraham, his intercession for the righteous in in Sodom. So that we're seeing the Godhead being revealed there. Abraham in the position of the mercy of God. And we covered that recently as well. Now whenever the students of Scripture come upon an intercession, whenever you see one in the Bible where somebody is interceding for somebody else, when you see that happening or a mediatorial event, we should immediately default to the role of Christ as the mediator and the high priest. We should say, okay, this is something that God is revealing with this, again, role-playing or dramatic theodicy or dramatic theology, if you want to think of it that way. The high priest office is the second uh, office of Christ Jesus. First, he's the suffering prophet. Then he is the intermediator, the mediator. He's the intercessor. He's the high priest. And then last, he's the king judge. So we have those three posts. Christ has three posts. He has three positions. Why are they in the order they're in? Why aren't they in some other order? But that's the order he chose. Why did he choose that order? I'll get to that in a minute. There are unquestionably three faces of the redemptive work of Christ here. But why is there three and why these three? Anyway. Abraham's mediation is without controversy portraying the Second Peter 3.9 principle. And that's where the prophet Jesus God is not willing that any should perish. And so Abraham is in that position of the suffering prophet. Now keep, to keep repeating the obvious, Genesis 18 connects to the flaming light and the smoking furnace of Genesis 15.17 and the let, me, let this cup pass of Matthew 26.39, the I will, you will. Uh, if you want to call it that way, if you want to think of it that way, the two wills of the triune Godhead are colliding at Matthew 26:39. Christ says, not my will, but your will. Right? There's a collision. I have two wills. They both have wills. Isn't that interesting? Where did they get those wills? What did they do with those wills? But they both have them. Not my will, but your will. What is Christ doing? He's setting aside his own will to do what? To do the will of the Father. So which one is he choosing? Oh, wait, is he choosing? (laughs) Does he have the capacity to choose? What does he do with that capacity? Does he keep it all to himself? Never mind, I'm getting off the track here. It's a fantastic mystery, the two wills. 
the not my will, but your will. It's a fantastic mystery, the one that no one has ever completely resolved or ever will solve because Gudel, Kurt Gudel, 1931, incompleteness theorems. The incomplete, we can't prove anything. We cannot know, we cannot solve. When the mystery is infinite, only an infinite being can tell you what's true and what's not true. Only the complete, which is God Himself, the Elohim, can know the truth. Genesis 15.8 And and we believe Him, John 11.25 and Genesis 15.6. Uh, I should say right here, John, 1 John uh, 3.23. We are commanded in 1 John 3.23 to believe Him. He commands us to believe Him. Think about that. Why, why does He command us? If we have total inability, what's the point of commanding someone that has total inability? It makes no sense at all. So you have added some kind of uh, incoherent position to, the, to your doctrine. And again, First John eight three. I'm sorry, First John three twenty three. We are commanded to believe him by him. Okay, I digress there. Where, where was I? Aaron. I was at Aaron. Number 1647, he takes the censer. You know the story. I hope you do. He takes the censer. He runs into the mist of the plague, right? That's what he does. He's a mediator. He's an intercessor. He takes a censer and he runs in there with fire and he's, try, he's going to stop the plague from killing people. Aaron stands between the living and the dead. So there's dead and there's living and he's in the middle. So... You recognize what's going on here. That John from Pennsylvania, hi John from Pennsylvania, would really appreciate what Aaron is trying to depict. He's depicting something that is in the triune Godhead. He Does Aaron know what he's doing? I doubt it. Does he do it anyway? Yes. Does he know it'll work? Yes. Does he know what he's portraying? No, I don't think so. I don't think any of the typologies or the typological characters in Scripture that were chosen by the Holy Spirit, I don't think any of them really knew what they were doing or how it all worked. I don't think Joseph, when he's lifting out, being lifted out of the pit, goes, hey, I'm a type of Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. Anyway, Aaron the high priest unmistakably is in the role of Christ Jesus. You can't deny it. I take that back. You can deny it all you want, but you're, you're, your position is, is infantile. Well, that's not nice. Your position has no validity. And so there's Aaron as the high priest role of Christ. In, in the, uh, so he's in the second position of the three positions of Christ's uh, phase, if you will, of his offices, as was Abraham. And note that Mark 15, 27 and Luke 23, uh, 39 through 40 and Matthew 25, 31 through 46, Christ is in the midst of the dead and the living. He has a thief that is dead and he has a thief that is living, right? How he defines it. So he's in the midst. The left and the right. It even says the left and the right. The tree of life, Revelation 22.2, is in the midst of, uh, of uh, its street, the pure river of the water of life. So you see this, the tree of life. We know that's a symbol of Christ. It's obvious uh, that that's what it is. It's in the midst in the new city of Jerusalem in Revelation 22.2. So to rerun the repeating of the question, why does the triune Godhead utilize typology or symbolism and or, in these cases, Abraham and Aaron to reveal himself? Why is he doing it this way? Why doesn't he just... Huh? What would you do? Why doesn't he just print it in the in the sky like an airplane carrying a banner or, or one of those things that flips around and their their exhaust writes? What do they call that? Yeah. Well, in order to solve that, ask the obvious, which is a reciprocative question. That's a process that's always of value. If you can't figure out why what he's doing, then flip it, reverse it. In this case, let's ask it this way. What would God's alternatives be? Which is kind of what I was doing. What other choices did he have? What other choices are there? And if I have done my job, all of the internet, including you two and and Lori and the dog, are screaming right now because you're screaming at me, goodle, goodle, goodle. Because that was just an intentionally badly worded question, which I am... I tend to do, part of my tactic, why are everyone, I hope everyone, are out there screaming, goodle, goodle, goodle? Why would you be screaming that? Because God, again, is infinite. 
And he can prove what is true because he can look at every single calculation, every variable, and he can eliminate it instantly. And so every time he did some, something, all variables are accounted for. Every time he does something, it is what? Perfect. Absolutely right. That's what, that, 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 what is chosen is perfect. And he is perfect. He says so. I am perfect. And his word is the perfect. Uh, when the perfect comes, 1 Corinthians 13.10. So the correct question now rises up. Why is this mechanism, this system, this main one by which God will communicate with humanity, why does he do, the, do it this way? It's the perfect way and it is until the perfect comes. Now we have the perfect, right? But now we have the perfect and we see what he did prior to the perfect coming. Why, does it, why do we have a perfect? Why did it have to come? How does all of this work? What is he doing? Try to understand like him. This is again Isaiah 55, 9, right? 8 and 9. You don't, we don't think like him. But we should try to think like him. We don't pray like him because we're what? Idiots. We're praying for a football team to win. We're, we're idiots. We're praying for a Mercedes Benz. We're doing whatever we're doing. Uh, and it doesn't, that's not how he thinks. He doesn't think like that. But try to think like he thinks is the point, as best we can. Now, we're, how close are we going to get? Well, we're, we're not going to get close. But we should try. So why does he communicate with humanity? Why is this his, his method of giving information about himself and, and about humanity and about everything else that's all involved in, in these things? What Sodom and Gomorrah was more than just humanity with respect to why he communicates this way, it was a completely dysfunctional, disastrous evil. So I, here's the easy question. How do the angels receive information from him? If he's talking to us this way, does he talk to the angels this way? How about the animals? Is there a difference? If there is a difference between how he communicates himself to us, why is there a difference between what he does with us and what he's doing with the angels? Is there any indication that the angels didn't get it? Well, yeah, a third of them collapsed and went into continual evil. They are evil continually. They never do anything but think evil thoughts. That is the demonic realm right now. How did that happen? And why does he do it this way? It's almost like he's feeding out little pieces of information to you. You know why it seems like that? Because that's exactly what he's doing. So what's the point? It is the only way to do it. All the variables have been accounted for. This is the perfect method. Why is it the perfect method? Because he's not making a mistake. We do have some information at our disposal. Genesis 1.26.3.22, for example. The angels heard for the first time there, in my opinion, that the creator God was three persons that are the whole. And no one could conceive that when no one has ever conceived that. There is no book anywhere ever written before other than the Bible. Anyone that is written is copying the Bible, which is what you find with the, the Gilgamesh, the Babylonian Gilgamesh epic. That is a, that is a, Genesis is a refutation of that. It isn't a copy of it. There is nothing else that describes the triune God in. Nothing. That's another reason why those of you who have recognized the Bible for what it is, are doing the right thing. All the rest of it is the counterfeit. There's only one true one. There's only one way, says that John 14, 6. There's only one truth, me. Nothing else. One way, me. One word, me. He's the word. The angels heard for the first time that Creator God was three persons that are the whole. And by saying that, each, I'm trying to say that each of the persons are infinite. So and now you can invest the distinctions of the personhood of each of each of the, the Father, the, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Good luck. What, how, you know, this is something that you have to believe. You can't know it. Again, scream goodle, goodle, goodle. I hope somewhere goodle is appreciating his notoriety. I would tell you that I suspect, and I wish somebody would write me, have you ever heard Kurt Goodall's incompleteness theorems in any other church you've ever been associated with? If you have, I want to know who that guy is or who that person is. I want to know that I'm going to be thrilled. It's my stated 
off-stated opinion that had Satan known the triunity of God, because he found out when everybody found out, he found out post-fall. They all found out post-fall. Why did God leave if I'm right? And why did God wait to expose to the angelic realm his triunity? I, I look at the two groups. I look at the faithful angels and the fallen angels, and I think the faithful angels go, wow. And the fallen angels go, whoa, that's what I think happens. I believe if they had the, and again, it's a strong position that I have. I think I can defend it, and I believe I can. I have in the past that, that Satan would have, he, his lie, he would have altered it. And I know he alters lies. I cite evidence of that in Matthew 27, 3, 9 and Acts one twenty five. Judas, Satan, recognized that Christ has intended to sacrifice himself, and they panic. And they alter their plan. They modify it. When they saw that he was going to shed his blood, they modify their plan. And their plan, of course, included Zechariah 11.13, throwing that money. And Judas says, there's no remorse there. There's regret. I regret. I have, I have sent to you the wrong person, he said. Now, whoops. So who's the right person? Yeah, absolutely. Who can do what Christ can do? But Judas is trying to stop Christ's sacrificial death because he probably, because he has Satan inside of him at the time, recognized the sacrificial system at that point is being replicated by Christ himself. The sacrificial system teaches us of Christ. Again, there's another typology or symbol that, Christ, that God uses to do what he's doing. You have to know why he's doing it. Why does he communicate this way? Why are we receiving information in this manner? Because it's the perfect way. So there's so many difficult questions here. Uh, notice we're back to Judas. How does he do it? I tell you that 1712 is really important, and I go off and I'm in the weeds, and then I come back to 1712 with Judas. How does he do that? It's amazing. So many difficult questions here. Why did God withhold his triunity? How do these all fit together? We need to take another whack at the incredible implications of John 17:12. Those of whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them are lost except the son of perdition. That the scripture might be fulfilled. How does God lose? Because Christ is God. Christ lost Judas, the son of perdition. How does God lose somebody? How does he define losing? Because that's what you have to do. When he says, I have lost, you need to understand what lost means. How does, what is the lost process? And again, these questions are really difficult. The Holy Spirit through Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2.3 identifies the son of perdition, perdition as the Antichrist, the man of sin, the eighth, great, the eighth great mystery of the eleven mysteries, the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, Revelation 19.19-21, 2 Thessalonians 2.8-12. That's the Holy Spirit doing that in the perfect, identifying Judas as the son of perdition, and the son of perdition as being the Antichrist, and Judas as the lie, and the lie being the Antichrist. The Lord God Almighty himself reveals that the son of perdition is Judas. That ought to be good enough for you. But it's a very rare position. And I think it's a big mistake because you lose the meaning of 1712 John. Hebrews, uh, I'm sorry, uh, perdition is a place. Acts 125, Judas is the son of a place. Revelation 17.11, Hebrews 10.39, 2 Peter 3.7. The place is where the son of perdition awaits. He's waiting there. He's waiting to be called. Satan calls him out of perdition. Uh, uh, 12.17-13.1 Revelation. Also, Revelation 11.7. And, and I know you, people are going to disagree with me. And I should point out here that most translations begin Revelation 13.1 with, I stood upon the sands of the sea. Okay? Who's the I stood? The context doesn't, doesn't comply with that. It doesn't cooperate with that statement. The I stood, the majority assume that that is the Apostle Paul that stood. I'm sorry. Gosh, I'm getting old. That's the Apostle John that stood there. 
So in other words, John is saying, I stood upon the sands of the sea in Revelation 13.1. No, that's not what's there. Uh, the, the context comes from further back. Revelation 12.3 and 4. Revelation 12.17. Those are continued at Revelation 13.1. So you have to go back into Revelation 12. Look at 12.3 and 4. Revelation 12.17 and you will figure out who is standing there. If you want to have that position that somebody is standing there. The frame of reference is to the dragon. Not to John. Satan is there. Revelation 13, the Antichrist is coming out of perdition. And Satan is bringing him out. And uh, it's Satan, Satan who stands on the sands and beckons the son of perdition. And Christ calls the son of perdition another name. He calls him the abomination. Matthew 24.15, Daniel 9.27. So the abomination is a person. It's also an act, but it is a person. The literal Greek, as you should know, I should say, by the way, I've actually done really good of not saying by the way. Except intentionally worded wrong question. No, that would be intentionally worded wrong question. The literal Greek here omits the first nine words of the usual translation of Revelation 13.1. What's that? Okay, don't move. Stop moving. Stay seated. Don't pass notes to the other people in the class. And don't chew gum. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay, where am I? The literal Greek omits the first nine words here the, of the usual translations that you're going to find in your Bibles of Revelation 13.1. The Literal Greek begins with, And I saw out of the sea a beast rising, having horns ten and head seven. That's what the original Greek says. It does not have, I stood upon the sands of the sea. Not there. Now, I'm not going to disagree that it shows some value. Uh, I, I don't, I, I think it has complete, I can understand why they did it. Because uh, I, I believe they knew it was Satan when they were talking about that. John would not be calling the beast out of, out of perdition, or the abomination out of perdition. He wouldn't be doing that. Okay? Revelation 17, 7 through 11 brings amazing information to the eighth mystery. The beast that was and is not and goeth into perdition. This is an astonishing verse. I've covered it before. It's profound was and is not and will ascend. Three things that the son of perdition has done and will do. He was, he is not now, and he will ascend out of the abyss. So that's important to know. How did he get into the abyss is also important to know, and that's again Acts 1.25. Okay, Matthew 24.15 are words spoken by the Word himself, John 1.1. Christ is the Word of God, as John points out. He is the one that speaks words. He speaks things into existence. The Creator, God, Jesus Christ, is who this is, the Word of God, uh, Colossians 1, 15-17. And He reveals that whom He calls the abomination is a person who stands in the holy place. So when you get to Daniel, the abomination is a person who stands in the holy place. And that's Matthew 24, 15. All that to say, Christ lost... The abomination. He lost the son of perdition. He lost Judas. And we need to understand how it is so that an infinite, omniscient, omnipotent God lost the abomination. And keep in mind that John 17.12 is, is again a triune verse. The son is speaking this aloud to the father. I lost the son of perdition, he said. I lost Judas. What does he mean? Does he mean what we mean? Are his thoughts our thoughts? Does he think like us? Oh, no, he does not. So we have to say, what does he mean? And, and when we say, well, he means the same as me, then what are we? Raise your hands, you're an idiot. Because it isn't true. If you're going to put something in the forefront of your, of your life, put Isaiah 55, 8, and 9. 
Stop thinking that you're, you're thinking like God or He's thinking like you. It isn't happening. It doesn't happen. It won't happen. He's infinite. You're not. Quit it. Understand your position. Again, what does lost mean to God? This eighth mystery by far. It's the greater mystery of the ten. Now, there are eleven mysteries of the ten. This is the greater mystery of that ten. And, of course, it follows the greatest mystery, which is the mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16. So I have the mystery of of godliness and I have the mystery of of the seed of the serpent, and they are not side by side. One is infinite, one is not infinite, so the, the, the delineation between the two, I have a fly around here. Whoa. No. Once again, too small. Your hands have to be wet to catch those little guys. So, uh, obviously, the hypostatic union, the God-man, is the greatest mystery. And it is. Then the Satan-man, to me, logically, would be the far distant second, but second nonetheless. I mean, if the, if the mystery of the godliness, the mystery of God adding humanity, the mystery of, of God's humanity is in, impossible uh, to ever resolve, we'll never know, then what has to be next is the Satan-man. in my view, even though second is infinitely uh, behind. Anyway, it's just ahead of the other ten. Are there remaining nine in this case? Why did the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, Exodus 3.2, and yes, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus is the angel of the Lord here. Uh, Make no mistake about that. And notice really fast, Matthew 124, the angel of the, of the Lord woke Joseph out of a sleep. Reminding us of the sleep of Adam and the sleep of Abraham. Put all the sleeps together. The, the sleep of Noah. Go find all the sleeps and put them there. Joseph is in, is in the sleep business. He's with the others. That's pretty good company, don't you think? Abraham, Adam, Noah, Joseph. He's got to be feeling pretty good about that, huh? Christ wakes him up and Christ is the angel of the Lord. Woke him from a sleep. And Christ commanded Joseph to name the firstborn son. What did he tell him to name it? Salvation. When your baby is born, name him salvation. So that's Christ telling Joseph his name. Hebrews, I'm sorry, uh, Proverbs 30 verse 4. No one knew the name of the second person of the triune Godhead until he revealed it. And that name is salvation. And they say the Lord God, the angel of the Lord God, and the, whole, the spirit of the Lord God. That's common in Hebrew. But it's really the Lord God, or if you want, the Father is fine. Salvation and the spirit. Because he gave his name. And when this occurred, there was an, an angel. So we have, we have this differentiation. We have an angel... We have the angel. I did that badly. Let me do it again. I have an angel. And I have the angel. And this is one of those times. The old King James has the definitive the in both verses. And that's, I think, incorrect. The angel of the Lord is absolutely distinct. He's alone. And when he speaks, he speaks as God. And he identifies himself as God. An angel doesn't do that. And would never do that especially a faithful one, a demonic one, right? And for those of you who wish to arrive at a conclusion of who moved the, I'm sorry, who moved the stone in Matthew 28 too, the Greek has no article there. So there's no the or there's no and there. Some, I'm going to say the angel of the Lord moved that stone. Some people will say an angel did it. But there's no article, so there's no way to know. So the only hope you have is the context. And you might remember, I have the angel of the Lord position. I've done it at Matthew 28 too. And because I submit the stone could not be moved. Whose, whose plan is this? It's God's plan. It's Christ himself. You can't move the stone without him unbinding the stone. And so that stone was not movable until he moved it. And I think it's obvious that that's the case. I don't have time to do it today. Just start. He's omnipotent. 
You're not going to move that stone unless you want unless he wants you to. Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? No. He can lift it. Oh, wait a minute. The answer is yes. It's an infinite question, isn't it? And so you as goodle, goodle, goodle. Let's, let's keep going here. Quit, quit being an idiot. Am I, am I going to get in trouble for telling people they're idiots? I'm, I mean it in a kind way. Because if you're an idiot, you, you will be wanting to know. Otherwise, that's not good. I want to know when I'm stupid, which is a lot. I want to know. It doesn't affect me very much. I can continue along. I'm wedded to stupid very often. But occasionally I change. Okay, where am I? What am I doing? Why did Jesus God, the angel of the Lord, who is the I am, that I am, Exodus 2, Exodus 3.14, he's the, he's the voice, the word of God from the bush that will not burn, though it is on fire. Why does he come with two angels at Genesis 18.12 and Genesis 18.22, Genesis 19.1? These are the two angels that abduct Lot and his wife, just like, like the rapture at some point. Uh, they are extracting Lot and his wife and his two daughters. They're taking a hold of them by their hands. So we have a physical act here. Got to pay attention to that. This is the intermediate state, we think, but it's not. The angelic state is not the same as the intermediate state. And they're able to grab hold of these daughters and grab hold of the hand of Lot's wife and grab hold of the hand of Lot and abduct them out. Genesis 19.16, before the destruction of of this very grave sin, as God described, describes, uh, describes Sodom, and this exceedingly great wickedness that was against the YHVH. Whenever you see the YHVH, that means it's Lord, and every letter is capitalized. It's the ineffable name of God. And it says that this wickedness was against the YHVH. Genesis 13.13. 13. Here's a great question. I think it's a great question. We know that Noah and Lot are combined at 17 Luke, right? Luke 17. As it was in the time of Noah, so shall it be in the time of Lot. That will, It's a sign to the Hebrews, to the Israelis at the end of the age of the Gentiles. It's now going to be here on you, on you and there's a time of great tribulation, Jacob's trouble. So remember Lot's wife, he said. Because she was taken out by the hand. It's one of the reasons he wants you to remember but she ran back trying to get her grandchildren. Now, I've done that lecture hundreds of times probably. That's my view. Notice that uh, I want to know Noah was, was in, in Genesis 6 he was called something by God. The Bible says righteous. But the word is tamin and it means uncontaminated. And he's called righteous. Does the Bible call Lot righteous? Oh, that's true it does. That would be Second Peter 2.18, right? So I have Lot righteous and Noah righteous and I have Lot in 17 Luke and I have Noah in 17 Luke. And so I want to know, and again, 6-9 of Genesis is where Noah is called righteous or uncontaminated. I want to know if Lot was uncontaminated. How many people in Sodom were uncontaminated? See, that's my question. Play with that while I move along. That was just for fun. Okay. As you may remember, the two angels did not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Who destroyed Gomorrah? Who, who destroyed Gomorrah and Sodom? That would be the YHVH. That's the Lord God Himself. Genesis 19:27. He does it, and, and, which is why the question. Again, I, I believe that Abraham recognized Melchizedek here. I've made that case as much as I can. So I'm going to say Melchizedek is Christ. Obviously, I believe that's obviously true. Jesus Christ comes with two angels to put an end to extreme evil that was in the face of the Lord. That evil was in, in God's face. We're going to do this evil in, in your face. Open defiance. It's my position that the sons of Belial, because that's who's here, I got to, I back that up when we did Judges 19, deliberately, with knowing premeditation, they're openly defying, defying the Creator God. They're daring Him to intervene. You, we can do all this evil. You will not stop us. They're mocking him. And I bring Psalm 10.6 and 10.13 to here now. 
This level of evil, this is pure evil continually, again, just like Genesis 6. They're certain that they will not face adversity. God will not require account. There is no judgment. God will not do anything. They can do all the evil they want. Why do they think that? Goliath, remember, defy the living God for 40 days, 1 Samuel 17, 16. The Antichrist, Revelation 13, 5 through 6, he mocks and blasphemes God for 42 months. After 42 months, he's pretty confident God's not going to do anything. Same thing for Sodom and Gomorrah. How long had they been doing what they were doing? Would it have been 42 months? Just, just, just asking. So the Antichrist mocks God for 42 months and he blasphemes God's name and his holy tabernacle. And he also blasphemes those who dwell in heaven, Revelation 13.6. So he's taken on everything. Okay, have you been counting all the questions? How many questions we got? Did I get up to 500 yet? There's still time. Barely. Got to move. Who are these two angels? I got two angels here. Who are they? Uh, what do you think? Most people propose that they're Gabriel and Michael. I got nine minutes. Got to go. Besides taking Lot and Lot's wife and Lot's two daughters, what was their purpose for being there in the strongest position? It's their two witnesses. Okay, were they similar, therefore, to the Revelation eleven four two witnesses, Elijah and Moses? And yes, I have the Elijah Moses position. Bringing angels doesn't, at first glance, seem to make any sense here. Why has he brought two angels? Does he need two angels to do anything other than take? Does he even need them to take Lot and Lot's wife and Lot's daughter out? No, he doesn't. But if you adhere to the Revelation eleven four and uh, Deuteronomy seventeen six, two witnesses. Edict from God. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How many witnesses came to Sodom? One of them was God. He's quite the witness. And two angels came. Three witnesses. It says one or two. I got two in, in Revelation 11. That clears up a whole lot. Why are the evil ones convinced that there will be no justice, no judgment, the lake of fire? Why are they so convinced of that? No one will go in the lake of fire. If I am correct, the lake of fire was shown to the fallen angels at the trial of Satan, Genesis 3.14, Matthew 25.41. They know it's there. They don't care. Why don't they care? They don't think he'll do it. Why do these evil ones not believe they will be cast into the place of utter darkness and gnashing of teeth where the worm, and it says their worm, where their worm never dies, Isaiah 66.24. Mark 9, 44 through 46, where the fire is not quenched. quenched. Can angels feel pain? That's the question. Seems logical. So how, they can grab you by the hand. Can can we whack them in the hand and make them hurt? Where is pain? Is pain a physical property or a mental property? It is a mental property. We have people that have no arms and they feel pain. Right? It's a, it's a mental property. Anyway, I'm proposing that demonic, the, the demonic one-third have a steadfast dogmatism in their ultimate faith. In other words, that this is going to work. They're convinced of it. They have convinced themselves and God has given them over to an evil, continual, debased, darkened mind. He lets them believe what they want to believe. He, can't, he doesn't stop them. Notice how I worded that. They, they have the position that judgment is never going to be imposed on them. The lake of fire is therefore a fake. It's a tactic. God is lying. Therefore, God is incapable of judgment. Why would they believe that God is incapable of judgment? They, they think he's just putting all these facades, these charades up saying, hey, hey, I'm going to put you in there, but he can't do it. Why can't he do it? Why would they cling to that? I've covered that before. should know why they think that. It's logical that the two olive trees of Revelation 11.4 those two witnesses are two human beings. Those are two men. That's logical. Oh, if that's logical, then it's therefore likewise logical that the two witnesses of Genesis 19 are also, are all, are, I'm sorry, those two witnesses are angels. If they're going to be men in 11, Revelation, then they've got to be angels in uh, Genesis 19. Why do they have to be angels? That was pretty cool. Let's try it again. Hey, because angels are, if angels are involved, it means that angels are involved. If 
I got witness angels, what do I got? I got some kind of angel problem. I got angels against angels here. The evil of Sodom and Gomorrah was beyond our ability to conceive. God Himself, Jesus Christ, descends to stop it. Christ comes down to stop it because the outcry has surpassed the level that the long-suffering God would tolerate. Genesis 18.20. That's what He says. Okay. The Lord God said of, of the very grave evil, I will... Oh, He says, I will. That's interesting. I will go down and see. I will know. How does the omniscient, omnipresent God see and know things? I will know. Why does he go down? Obviously, you have to put all those pieces together. We don't have time today. We should do it on the 23rd of October. We should give attention to the other instances of this. Genesis 6 is this. Revelation 19, 11 through 12, where God, where Christ makes war against the wicked ones. Note also Revelation 9. Angels are involved in Revelation 9. Angels are involved in Revelation 12. <coughs> Excuse me. I've said recently that Genesis 19.4 and Judges 19.22, those compare, sons of Belial. And I indicate that the sons of Belial are present here in Sodom at a very high level, which would explain why two angels are witnesses, because angels are called to be jurors against angels, and therefore they're going to be jurors against Nephilim. In other words, all things that comprise or implicate or entangle the leaving of the heavenly estate, Jude 6, by those who believed and allied themselves with Satan. And remember the heavenly estate, the Greek word translated abode at Jude 6, is translated the human body at 2 Corinthians 5.2. The tent is a human body. The tent groans. They left their tent. So what's going on in the angels? What are they really like? How are they like that? How does it work? We don't know. And we also, humanity, saved humanity, believing humanity, we're jurors in the trials of the demon. We're going to try the demon. Not as a judge. We're not going to pronounce sentence, but we're going to be the jurors. 1 Corinthians 6.3 Don't you know that you are going to judge the demons? Now most people think we're judging angels. We are, because angels are demons. What is this worm that never dies? Well, there's a collection of opinions. Keep in mind that Jesus himself quotes Isaiah 66.24. He quotes that verse. And he quotes it within the context of Mark 9.42. So here's the context. But whoever causes one of these little ones, who are the little ones when he says little ones? Those are children. Whoever causes one of these children who believe in me to stumble, their worm will not die and the fire is not quenched. So you stop children from believing in Christ. If you think children forbid me, forbid not, if you're forbidding children from going to Christ, in your doctrine, if you think that you should forbid children from going to Christ, then your doctrine needs to change immediately. Their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, the theological majority see the worm maggot to be an unending suffering torment. The worm then being is a symbol for the tortures of the lake of fire. That's what they see. That's the, that's the majority, the theological majority. But Christ doesn't back that up in my opinion. He individualizes it. He personalizes it. He says, their worm. So he makes it individual. He, he said, it's your worm. He, he validates the their worm of Isaiah 66.24 and Isaiah 14.11. And that the occupants of hell say to those who arrive, have you become like us? Are you going to have a worm that doesn't die? Have you become like us? So connect Matthew 22.30 and Hebrews 12.22 to this also. Everyone cast into hell will have their worm that does not die. Job 25.6 is the only other Old Testament passage that has the Hebrew word for worm here uh, besides Isaiah 14.11. So on 14.11 and and Job 25.6, that's the only place you find this word. The point is, yea, a point. The Hebrew is singular. It's not worms. You're going to find translation that says worms. But it's not worms. At 25.6, it's singular at Job. It's plural at Isaiah 14.11. And it's singular again at Isaiah 66.24. So which one's out of the mix? 14.11 of Isaiah should be worm. It's the final verse. 66.24 is the final verse of Isaiah. As a matter of fact, that will come into play. 
And all of this causes issues. And I submit, again, that it's worm and not worms or maggot and not maggots. Isaiah 14.11 says as well, under, under you is the maggot and cover you worm. How are human beings defined? How, are, how does he define us? What does he say we are? Are we a body? Did he define us as the body? That we have this physical body? No. He calls us a spirit. You are a spirit that has a body. You mean us. Uh, you, me, us, we, them. We're, we, we are a spirit, mind, soul, consciousness that has a body. We are not the body. We have never been the body. The personhood is in the spirit and the soul and the consciousness and the mind. The body is a veneer. It's just a way of demonstrating what the mind is thinking. It's a machine. The you, me, us, them, we are not the body. Can't say that enough. The body dies. The mind continues. Consciousness continues. It's not affected by the death of the body. And, but many, many theologians then take that, that understanding and they conclude that the worm is the consciousness here. So you have this position. The worm is consciousness or the worm is something that torments you. But the worm cover the you, it says. Isaiah 14.11. The worm is under you, Isaiah 14.11. And so what covers the consciousness? Consciousness doesn't cover the body. The body covers the consciousness, Genesis 2.7. And in hell, the worm never dies. Physical death in this world ends evil and physical pain. In hell, the worm does not die. So there is no physical death in the lake of fire. No end to misery. Just my, my position there. A few more comments on total inability, irresistible grace. How can the adorable HTRP tie all of this stuff that I just threw out here today into a neat, uh, pristine gift package with a bow? Well, here's how I'm going to do it. We have Deuteronomy 6.5. In Matthew 22:34 through 40, the Lord God Almighty asks, answers a question. When He answers a question, especially when He is straightforward with doing it, then you ought to go, "Oh man, I got to sit down. I got goosebumps." He's answering a question, and it's not with a parable. This is bam, bam. Thank you, ma'am. This is flat out pow. Here's what He does. The question is, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, this, as you know, was another pathetic Pharisee committee trap. They had a meeting and they came up with a trap question, and this is it, Matthew 22, 34 through 36. We need to know, how is this a trap? And this is a very important thing. They are asking him a question that is a trap. I want to know if anybody else has asked this question, so let's go on. What is the greatest commandment in the law? And Christ answers, here it is. Here's the greatest commandment. You shall love your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Why is that the greatest commandment? Let me repeat it. You shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Notice which ones I emphasize. That's the greatest commandment. We know that's how is it that that's the greatest commandment? Why is that the greatest commandment? Of all the commandments, that's the greatest. Not even close. First off, we have the capacity to do something. What is it that we can do? We can love God. Because he's telling us, he's commanding us to love God. If we had total inability to love, which is what some people believe, then why would he tell us to love him? God. Him. What is love? We have the capacity to do it. He's just told us we do. So what is it? What is love? If mankind and angels are animal, and animals are locked into total inability, unable to, destroy, to display will of any kind, then mankind, you can't, you can't love anything without will. The greatest commandment says love, and it can't be done without will. Man, mankind cannot love if he has total inability. Or irresistible grace, which is the same thing. If love is forced, it's predestined, it's coerced, then love is not love. What is it? It's a pretense. Love requires will. Love cannot be predestined, nor can belief be predestined, nor can trust be predestined, or obedience, for that matter, 
If prayer is not of the will, is it prayer? If you force somebody to pray, is that prayer? If you force somebody to believe, is that belief? That's not. All of these things are unsalable without will. His, his will allows our will. He, he delights and he mourns. He weeps over people who are lost. All of that explains how Judas was lost by the omnipotent God. Next week, or not next week, sorry, October 23rd, I'll explain eternal security, the order of it. There's an order to sec- eternal security. We'll explain that. Okay. There you go.